Welcome to the Lifestyle Chase. This podcast features high performers who have found a way to live their best life while balancing their health, wellness, friends, and family. Proudly hosted by me, Chris Little. Without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to the Lifestyle Chase, episode 32. Today I am joined by the one and only Lucintha. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm very well, Chris. Very happy to be here today. How are you? I'm good. So I would like to know what is a day in the life for you? Like what, what, how do you start your morning? What kind of things do you do in the day? Yeah. Pick one of your busiest. Oh, um, so I'm fortunate in that my days aren't too busy right now, mainly because my kids are, they've grown a fair amount. Um, but a typical day is a weekday. I wake up around 7.15, 7.20. I um, go downstairs, make breakfast for my kids. Husband's down, he's usually down before me, so he gets things going. We have breakfast together as a family, and then if it's cold, drop my kids off. And then I usually go do something. I go to spin class, I go to yoga, I go do something where I can move, body or mind, or meditate. Um, and then I go back home, clean up, cook. Um, take attend to the house laundry cooking that kind of stuff um i try to during the week every week at the start of every week carve out a couple hours in one day it's usually a thursday or friday where i get to connect with a friend or friends and that is usually how i start my week off so on a sunday i plan that and then the whole week is kind of working towards that. That's my little treat for myself, is connecting with somebody one-on-one, face-to-face. And uh, once my kids come home, we're usually busy with either after-school activity stuff. I don't have them doing too many things, um, a couple things that they do, and uh, we attend to that, a little bit of homework. They practice the piano, we do dinner, and we do dinner as a family as well. So we usually wait until all six of us, we have four kids, all six of us are home. Um, And then our dinner table talk is usually everybody dissecting the day i like that and something i look forward to the whole day because everybody gets to talk about what they've done and um yeah and then i read and i go to bed that's awesome <laughs> it's pretty laid back it's really i like i've crafted it to get to this point yeah um, over the years to get to this point where i want to i want my days to feel laid back i want to feel the minutes as they pass. I don't want that rush. Although there are days where they are rushed and I get um, you know, a little um, rushed off my feet, but I try to minimize those days. Yeah. Makes sense, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, what are your favorite books to read lately? Um, honestly, I read everything, but lately I've been leaning towards um, nonfiction and autobiographies, a little bit of everything. Um, I still like fiction. I read a lot, so I usually read close to 100 books a year. I have a little app that keeps track of my books, so that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I pepper everything with fiction, but I'm leaning more towards autobiographies and biographies. I find I'm liking, I'm enjoying learning about real people and the ordinary, ordinary lives that people live and the little things that people have in their lives that make them extraordinary you know so a big rock star a big movie star not necessarily their climb to fame but the little details of what happened because i find that 
that is something that we can relate to everybody we know. I mm-hmm. can find that in you. I can find that in the lady on the bike next to me or somebody in the yoga studio. You know, relatable stuff. That's so awesome. I that I'm liking that more. What have been your top three books of the last 12 months, if you can pick them out? Okay, yeah. I have enjoyed Robin Sharma's 5 a.m. Club very much. I bought it the day I was waiting for this book because I'd read The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. Loved it. Mm-hmm. So I'd been waiting for this one to come out. I picked it up the day it came off. Um, loved it very much because it has a lot of great ideas. I like the way he sets out. This is what your first hour is going to look like. And I find it's a book you're going to highlight a lot. It's not a book you can lend out too much because it's going to be highlighted in all your own little notes. Um, I read um, fiction. I read a book recently called, what is it called? I Let You Go, fiction book, I Let You Go. And I liked it because I'm not going to say too much, but it has a lot of twists and turns. I like books like that, where you just never see it coming. And the thing that hits you right in your face is smack bang in the middle of the book, and you still got the other half to go through, wondering how the book's going to unfurl. Um, third book. Ugh, I'm going to have to think about this one. Those two jumped right out of me. Can we come back to that? Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. So I want to hear a little bit of your origin story. What was life like for you when you were in like high school and like, before you made the leap out of the nest and all that stuff, what describe yourself as a person? Yeah, I um, so I was born and raised in South Africa. I've lived in Canada now for um, just almost eighteen years. But so I did school, high school, university, and I worked. So before I became a yoga teacher, I I, I did something else. I had another job, and I did all of that in South Africa. So growing up in South Africa, I was raised in the 70s and 80s, 90s, um, the apartheid era in South Africa. South Africa was a country that was divided on race. So you were divided on race, um, and they spoke to four races. They divided the country according to four races. And I grew up at a time where I fell into the category of the Indian race. So we had the Indian race, we had whites, we had uh, blacks, that's how they were referred to as blacks, and everybody who didn't fall into those three categories were referred to as colored, very openly. The signs are all out there. Um, so I went to school to an Indian-only school. So you had to be only Indian to go to that school um, in an Indian area. We had to live in an Indian area the beach was divided to Indians only, whites only, blacks only, coloreds only, so forth. So everything was that way. Um, there were benches at the bus stop that were whites only. And if you were caught sitting on a bench, um, you could go to jail. Interrelation, um, interracial relationships were against the law. They were illegal. Um, you go to jail. Both parties go to jail. Um, so it was, it was normal for us. So that was normal. When I went to university, um, at the time when I went to university, Nelson Mandela had just been released. So the apartheid laws were starting to fall and things were starting to open up. So when I got to university, I went to law school. And that was the first time in my life I interacted with people from other races. Well, white people, white people, because I grew up in a farm town. So we there were a lot of black people around where we lived. Um, um, and I, I lived in a rural town as well. But I hadn't really interacted with what they called white people, Caucasians, which I got to do in university. So it was a bit of a culture shock, even though it was my country. <clears throat> you know, you have, when you grow up in a situation like that, 
um, and you're 18 years old and that's all you've ever known, um, you come to that point with scars. You know, there are these emotional scars, there are these wounds, there are these energetic scars that you bear. And it becomes, it is hard to relate. It is hard to relate because the races, the Caucasian, the whites had a lot of privilege assigned to them that everybody else didn't. So there was a lot of catching up. They spoke of things that we only heard of and then we got to see it firsthand in university, private schools, um, the lovely areas they lived in where they had trees and their beaches were like fantastic. Um, you know, as you went down the races, the beaches got worse. It was literally that way. So as you went down the races, they were, there's a hierarchy in race as well in South Africa. So, you know, we got to see all of that firsthand. Um, you know, I wouldn't say it was difficult because for me that was normal growing up. My children don't understand it when I talk to them about it. They're shocked. They're appalled. They, they find it unbelievable that you can see you can see the color of people's skin and gauge what their value is. So that was growing up in South Africa. Um, um, yeah, I, um, at the time I left South Africa, I was a lawyer. And because Nelson Mandela had been released, the ANC, the African National Congress was in party, they were the party in power. Um, there was a type of reverse racism going on. And I know if South Africans are listening to this, everyone's going to bristle a little bit because they, the government called it affirmative action, but in reality it was reverse racism. So what happened it was in, in, in a bid to level the playing fields, uh, what the African National Congress did at the time was to give the jobs to non-whites. So if I left my firm, I was replaced with a non-white person, regardless of whether or not they were qualified for the job. So that kind of stuff started happening. Then that led to a lot of turmoil in the country as well. Um, you know, I'm simplifying it, obviously, but yeah, that was growing up in South Africa. It was different. Mm -hmm. And what kind of inspired you or enlightened you to become a lawyer? Um, you know, I think... All my life, that was all I ever thought I'd do. I come from a family of lawyers. Um, my parents are not. My parents are teachers. Um, but we have many, many lawyers. I think we have more lawyers than anything else in my family, both sides. Um, culturally as well. Um, my culture, Indian people, people of Indian descent, they're usually very set in what you're going to do when you finish school. You're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, an engineer, that kind of thing. So I think it was a little bit of cultural pressure and then it was the um, influence of people around me as well. So it seemed like it was a no-brainer. I knew I was going to go to law school once I finished school and um, that's just the way it panned out. And what were the three toughest things about going to school to be a lawyer? What were the three biggest obstacles? Um, I found that the type of law I went into and practiced was criminal litigation, criminal litigation, defense, I was a defense lawyer. Um, the biggest challenge for me was that it was very much a boys club. Um, very few females went into criminal defense litigation. Um, so because it was something that was not stepped into by women, um, it had that flavor of being an old boys club. So I'd still get older male lawyers saying things like, hey, uh, you want to get me a coffee or, you know, some that kind of stuff. And yet we're 
we're at the same level, we're in the same court. Um, I found that to be um, a bit of a challenge at times. At the time when I left, things were starting to even out a bit. Um, I found that because it was criminal law as well, another, another challenge was that a lot of the times the crime that I saw presented in front of us, people that I was defending, they were victims of circumstances. They were people that were coming off the apartheid era. They were people that they may not necessarily have been inherently criminal. It was just the way their lives had been shaped by things that were kept from them, things that they were not allowed to do. Poverty, um, hunger. You know, I get to, I got to see that firsthand, what that can drive somebody to do. It doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad person. Um, but you do a bad thing because it's it's based on survival. So that was challenging as well. Um, I found that because I was doing criminal defense as well, I had to, third challenge, um, I had to keep my personal life very boxed and private. Um, very few people knew I was married. Almost nobody in that um, field knew what my husband looked like and I wanted it that way. Um, when I got pregnant with my first child, I knew at that point I needed to get out of it. It's, it's that type of law in that type of country. Um, it's best if you, nobody knows anything about your, where you live, what your child lives, looks like, where does your kid go to school. So I was actually trying to, starting to extricate myself from it at the time when I, we decided to move here. What was the biggest challenge of moving to Canada? The biggest challenge for us was leaving our family behind. I'm an only child, so I left my parents behind. My husband comes from a family with, um, he's got three siblings and uh, his mom was there and he's very close. He's much closer to his family than I am. So the biggest challenge was leaving all of that. Every Sunday, family get-togethers and, you know, weekend get-togethers, every birthday, every Christmas. Um, leaving all of that and coming here to start from scratch with just the two of us, um, that was challenging, not having social support. When you come here as an immigrant, because we were the first uh, generation immigrants here um, for our family, um, it's tough when you don't have support. Uh, we went to a rural town. We started off here in Canada in a rural, small little French Catholic town, about three hours outside Edmonton. Um, and like small towns, people are very closely knit so that when you're an outsider, um, you feel that you're an outsider. Not that they're unfriendly, it's just the way they've been. They all went to school together, their moms all knew each other, and they're very reluctant to loosen the knot to let an outsider in. So that was very challenging for us, was, you know, every hardship, and there were a lot of hardships, first three years were tough. Um, there was nobody to support there was nobody to lean on we had each other and there were times where things were just so hard it's hard to lean on somebody else when that person needs support as well mm -hmm. yeah, so that that was that was it so how did you and your husband meet oh i love this question um <laughs> we met at a party uh, we were both in university at the time and um yeah we met at a party he gay crashed a party of a friend of mine it was a birthday party and um I was with my high school boyfriend at the time and um, I took one look at my husband and I was like, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> like nudging my friend, who is that? And she's like, well, he came with one of our other friends and I'm like, bring him in, I gotta meet him. And um, 
I met him that night and yeah, it was 28 years ago. We've been together since then. That was it. That's crazy. That was just it. <laughs> As I called, called the other boyfriend the next day and I'm like, I'm so sorry, but yeah, just, I just met somebody else. How did the other boyfriend take it? Very badly. He actually <laughs> never spoke to me again until last year. So yeah. <laughs> How did you get into a conversation with him like after all that time? Um, with the ex-boyfriend? Yeah. Oh, I think it. we had a... We have a high school reunion coming up this year okay. in South Africa. So I think we, we connected via that. There was a little group that got together and we connected via that. And then we just started chatting. First it was on this WhatsApp text and then it was conversationally. And, and he's a really nice person. We, we've known each other from the time we were six years old. Mm -hmm. So all through those years. And we lived in a small town. So our families knew each other and all of that. And just nobody saw that coming. Yeah, you know, makes sense. Yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah. So what are your feelings going into a reunion after all this time has passed? Um, I'm, I was at my, my high school. They love reunions. We had a 25th year reunion five years ago. So I was at that one. Um, lots of fun. The one that's coming up this year, I'm not entirely sure I'm going to because I have a few things going on here at that time. But if I was able to, I'd love to go. I love seeing. Um, I've maintained strong contact with most of my um, high school friends, most of my law school friends. I go to South Africa every year in May. I go for a week. So um, I'm still very connected with them. I still chat with them on the phone. I my bonds are pretty tight. I think being an only child and not having siblings, um, the bonds with friends get really strong, yeah. different. They become family. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Um, what was it like growing up as like the, the child of teachers for you? Like wow, it was intense because, um, again, because it was a small town. When you live in a small town, have you ever lived in a small town? Yeah. You have, small. right? Everybody knows everything. So, mm -hmm. you, you know, they know your mom, they know your dad. You, you, you want to do that thing where you want to skip school and go play pool. Your dad knows about it by the time you get home. It's like a real thing that happened. So it was, it was hard, but my parents were understanding in the sense that they had a rule that I would not come to a school that they were teaching in. Because my dad always said he wanted me to have the freedom to be myself and not be, you know, Mr. So-and-so's daughter. My dad ended up being the principal of his school. So it was just as well, um, you know, it is a small town, but I think my, my father was very open-minded. He was the type of person that even when he heard that, you know, his teenage daughter was um, ditching school to go play pool and ditching school to do this or not doing that or getting into trouble here and there, he was quite open-minded. He saw it as, well, you're a teenager. You're meant to have these experiences. So, yeah. That makes sense. Out. What are three of the biggest lessons that you learned from them growing up? From my parents. I learned independence from them. My parents were not um, helicopter parents. They weren't overly involved um, in, in anything I did, actually. And sometimes... There's days where I sit on that and I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it did teach me independence from a very young age. I learned to be very um, discerning with my choices, especially when it came to my relationships with friends and family and anybody that's in my circle. I learned that because... My parents were not so involved and not so engaged with my life. I had to be careful who I allowed to engage with me because those people became part of my support structure. 
Um, and I learned to to really love large because that my parents are very much those people. They just love large. They um, just do everything. If something presents uh, itself to you, take it. Take it. That's awesome. Yeah. And how has that shaped you as a mother? As a mother, um, I'm a different type of parent to my children because <clears throat> I also have the influence of my husband. And he was raised slightly different from me, a more traditional uh, family uh, background he has. Um, I'm not a helicopter mom. I, I think if I was alone, if I didn't have my husband's influence, I would be because I can get a little too involved. Um, but he has. He, he tends to give me a little gentle tap, let them breathe let them be you know so i try to let them be i do encourage them to explore everything um we don't have a lot of rules in our house um we have a few basic rules about how you treat people and being respectful to each other and to people and to yourself but other than that i i have a um, old school way to my kids let them go and play outside go play outside come home when it's dark, you know, in the summertime. See the lights on, come home, that kind of thing. So I do like them to do that. If they want to play video games on a weekend and it's cold outside and there's nothing else to do, play video games, you know. So I, I like them to be where they where they need to be at the age they're at because that passes really fast and then they're a year later, they don't want to do this thing that they were so obsessed with now. They want to move on to the next thing. So, yeah, very much very loosey-goosey type of <laughs> parenting. <laughs> You That's know. awesome. <laughs> but but with the, let me stress, with strong, we have like our own moral principle um, foundation that they adhere to mm-hmm. and we insist on. So, yeah, yeah. What are the top three toughest things about being a parent? About being a parent? Um, I got to say, I think quite a few of your parents on your podcast have said this, is um, the influence of social media. I grew up at a time where there was no social media. I'm pretty bad at social media, actually. Um, But it's the same thing I hear other parents say. It's the way our kids are impacted by social media. You know, I see, especially when I have uh, my daughters at an age, I have almost 16-year-old, to see her look at things on social media and then use that to self-judge and critique herself and where she stands. I don't like that because that's not how um, um, that's not how I I don't think it's healthy. I, I think with social media it's become such an onslaught. It's a barrage of in your face um, exposure, People are dictating influences. I laugh sometimes at the word influence because you don't know if it's a bad influence or a good influence, right? Um, you get all this in your face. And then sometimes with children, um, they're so young and they're not mature enough me- mentally to pick through. In fact, I feel sometimes I'm not mature enough mentally to pick through some of the stuff. I get really put off or upset or emotional if I see something that, you know, triggers something in me. Um, and then you have children that are exposed to this on a every minute by minute basis. I My kids have cutoffs. They're not allowed to be on social media all the time um, and on electronics. But <clears throat> when they are, I do have to worry about that kind of thing. So I think for me, that's the big number one, um, raising kids these days. Um, yeah, I think it's a it's a really nice time. Other than that, it's a really nice time to be a child today. I think 
there's so much that they are exposed to that the digital world has brought to them as well. I don't think it's necessary. I'm one of those parents who doesn't think digital things are bad things. I think they need to be balanced, but I think that kids are growing up in an era where they have all this exposure to electronics and the media and digital media and devices. Um, it opens up, it broadens their world. So it has those drawbacks of where it takes them down, but it also has a positive exposure for them. So I think it's a pretty good time. I, I, I'm not finding too many problems. I find that with my kids, um, and it could just be, it might be an individual thing. We try to keep our communications open. So that's why we always have breakfast and dinner together as much as possible. So we try to do this thing. What, what's your day like? Even the littlest one, what's your day like? And we can pick up on who's a little down, who's feeling a little uh, off, who's sounding a little off. And lots of times we've been able to peel through who's going through what. We had a child who was being bullied for like many, many years. And all of that was stuff that would come out at the table. So um, I feel that we don't have too many challenges that way. I think our big challenge is the exposure to social media. Makes and, sense. You know. So as a parent, when, when your child gets bullied, how do you... How do you deal with that like gosh yeah you know very hard it was very very hard um because he he was a child that was you know beaten one of the kids that was beaten in school um there was a hole dug in the playground he was thrown in the hole covered in sand it was all that kind of stuff and um it's tough because the initial reaction as a mom is to go to the school and demand retribution you know you want punishment and the first couple times I did do that until, you know, this was going on for years with him. And um, my husband and I eventually said, well, we have to change the way we're doing this. We have to start empowering him, you know, because there's going to be bullies all through life. I mean, you could be my age and be 40. I'm going to be 48. You can be up to that age and still get bullies, you know, but they're not going to change. The only thing that's going to change is you. So we started communicating with him more. Um, we started speaking to, so my whole family's in karate and we had the karate instructors speak to him, did a little bit of extra anti-bullying work with him and stuff like that. It didn't work immediately, but we could see there was a slight mindset change. There was a slight mindset change where he would, he was able to say things like stop. It was something small like stop, just a word and a hand out and that was sometimes enough to stop some of them. But he's at an age now, I believe all of that has fallen away. But yeah, I think the hardest part was not reacting, not running in mama bear mode and going to the school and do something, do something, do something. You know, I want this kid's head on a, on a plate for doing this to my son. Because, you know, ultimately they're also children. The others are also children, uh, which we have to bear in mind as well. They're not 40-year-old bullies. They're also eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds and they're, probably mimicking behavior they're seeing, um, maybe at home or in their surroundings as well. So we changed things around where we started addressing our son and our children as to how do we, how do we draw boundaries? And it became a matter of teaching them boundaries. How do we draw a boundary where we can be firm enough that people don't cross over that boundary? You know? Totally. That totally makes sense. And it's like a self-awareness thing. Like, yeah. The, the more self-aware we are of, of where our weaknesses could be, yeah. 
the the more we can own them and make it so that other people can't like target those weaknesses. Yeah. And I was in a karate class once where the sensei was speaking to my son and it was something that I didn't realize until he brought it up where my son, I think it's a case of the chicken and the egg, what came first. My son would tend to stand always in the closed body posture, shoulders hunched, head hanging down, even in karate when you're in a fighting stance. And the sensei said to him, you know, look at the way you're standing. If I'm a bully and I see that, I'm reading your body language, you're presenting yourself in a certain way. Whereas if you were to send your shoulders back, just open up the chest, lift your head slightly. You don't even have to look him in the eye if you don't want to. But just a small change in body posture sometimes sends out. It changes the whole energy and whatever you're putting out there. And my son was reluctant, but kind of cued slowly into standing differently. And I was able to stand there and see how that looks different. It's just little things, right? Yeah. Self-awareness, exactly what you said. You become aware I'm standing in a certain way or I'm putting my head down if I were to just do this. And it's just these little fine-tuning things that go on. And it's so true. Like, uh, there's plenty of podcasts and audiobooks that go through, like, job interviews or, like, people trying to strengthen their relationships and it's basically like how we're talking to ourselves in our head and how we're presenting our body language and all these things play a role and it can completely affect the outcome of like how somebody's going to treat us how somebody's going to receive certain things that we say and it's like we we can't overlook it because it's going to totally change how everything happens because yeah people people's sort of impression of us changes Yeah. Like, I, I could totally coach somebody into bombing a first impression, and I could very likely coach them into owning a first impression. Yeah. And a lot of that is just, like, getting them to say the right things in their head yeah. to themselves and really respect themselves, because there's that uh, commonly used phrase, like, if if other people said to us the things that we said to ourselves, yeah. we would be so, so mad at them, yet yeah. we're saying it to ourselves all the time. Yeah. And yeah, just like something simple as shoulder positioning when you're walking around and like the head tilt when you're walking around, tone of voice. Um, I know that it makes a huge difference when when you're on a phone, if you're smiling while you talk, because people can hear that. That's right. But I want to hear the story about how you got into yoga, because I find that yoga is such an empowering thing and such a, like, I can only imagine how much it's changed how you've seen things. So how long have you, how long has it been part of your life for? I started practicing yoga about 17 years ago and on and off. I kind of flirted with it and because I had one child at the time when I started and then kind of went off and on every time I got pregnant and went off, you know, all that stuff. So um, I had no intention of teaching yoga. Um, I took a teacher training because I wanted to learn more about this thing that I've invested so much of time in practicing. And I wanted to learn more about, you know, the theory around it and the scripture around it. Um, So that was the intention behind doing the first teacher training. And I remember saying to the people that ran it, I've got no plans to teach. So, you know, I don't need to do all the extra teaching things and stuff here. I'll just do it but I'm not interested. And then we did these mock teaching classes and I really liked it because I never considered myself to be a teacher and I thought I had no patience to be a teacher. And I really liked that part. The part I liked was 
and I still do to this very day. My number one thing that I enjoy about teaching is sitting in an energetic space with other beings. Um, and it doesn't have to be that everybody is glowing and happy and vibrant. You can be having a really crappy day and be in this space with me, but it's if you're true to who you are and what you're in at that moment, that becomes the very authentic circle that we're all sitting in. I love that. And I, it's become something that I've gotten addicted to that, that, that sensation of being in this room with these people. And I started teaching, kind of fell into it accidentally. And um, when I started teaching, my primary focus was still learning more, was chasing knowledge, chasing knowledge. Whenever I could get my hands on a training or get myself carve out some time to take a training, I was taking trainings upon trainings upon trainings. It became a joke amongst one of my teachers that you're always training, you're always, there was just this whole world that was so different from the law world. It was a whole different persona of my own that came out, that flipped around. Um, and I just started training and teaching and training and teaching. And I started teaching all around the city. I think the first year and a half that I taught, I spent days just driving around from studio to studio, studio to studio, teaching, teaching, teaching. The more I taught, the more I learned. Um, the more I learned, the more I wanted to teach. And yeah, it became that. And um, I had somebody ask me once, you know, how does it feel going from law to yoga? And I honestly believe that law was part of my training to be a yoga teacher because I felt that law gave me the confidence to stand in front of a group of people and speak because I'm inherently shy. It, it doesn't come across too much. People that really know me well um, know that I'm a little closed off. I can be a little shy, a little insecure with things. But I felt that law gave me that platform and experience to stand in a room and talk to people, to make eye contact when I'm talking to people. And um, I really love what I'm doing now. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting that you say that you're shy because I believe that a lot of people that have a big influence on people are also very shy, whether it be that they would call themselves shy as well, but it's like the same characteristics and a lot of it comes down to like, I, cause I am called shy and I feel that I am shy quite often, but we are thinking about how, what we do affects other people. So we're a lot more hesitant to say or do anything because we know that as soon as we do, it's going to have an, an effect and we're maybe a little more closed off because we want to get a feeling of trust from the people that we interact with. Yes. Like, I know if I'm in a new setting, like sometimes I'll, I'll be able to read the room pretty quickly or sometimes it's just, I'll be at a thing that was organized by somebody who I trust a lot and then it's just easier to open up. But like, yeah. if, if it's the first time I'm meeting somebody, I can be super quiet because like I want to figure out more about them yeah. because any interaction and I talk about this a lot like every hour of, of time that you have is kind of like a, a gift like it's valuable to that person and it should be equally valuable to you yeah. and you want to assess like what is this person bringing value or taking value away because it all comes down to that authenticity like if, is this person being true to themselves and owning the things that they think are important 
or are they straying away from who they are and owning the things that they think that you think are important? Because at some point you'll you'll hit this wall if they are not being true to themselves. Yeah. That they run out of things that they thought that you thought were, were important and then you're it's like being in the middle of a lake without a paddle. Yeah. Like you're stuck because yeah. that's the person that you trusted with your time kind of thing. Absolutely. That's actually true and I've been saying that more lately, um, to my husband. I said I feel like lately in the last six months more like I'm shuttering off from people a little more and I've had people come and say are you okay is everything okay you seem like you've pulled back and it hasn't been anything other than exactly what you said it's also that knowing that the most valuable thing we have is time it's the most precious commodity Um, it outweighs everything in value so that when you sit with somebody and you talk to them and it just becomes um non-consequential conversation just talking for the sake of talking it can be very draining and you can leave there feeling depleted if it's empty conversation Mm -hmm. whereas you can rather sit in silence and be with yourself or if you're having a conversation and the conversation is something that fuels you energetically artistically however creatively then you leave there feeling bolstered you leave there feeling like there's something here that filled me up, right? Yeah, and that's that's kind of that's exactly where I've been as well lately. And I think yeah, I don't know. I, I've never thought of whether I come across as closed off or anything. I've just felt that well, I've just got to make every minute count. So whether it's having this chit chat with this person, or whether it's just sitting and running through my own head, or reading totally. a book, totally. And I think another thing to look at when we're people who call ourselves shy is it's our self-talk. We're almost framing our outcomes by being, oh, I'm shy. And it's just like, no, I'm, I'm just thoughtful. Yeah. Like the product of being thoughtful might be coined as shy, but if I define it as shy from the get-go, yeah. then I'm more likely to want that to be my end goal yeah. and, and not get to the point where I'm open yeah. and trust people. That's true. That's true, yeah. I know for myself, I've gained a lot from, like, really, really trusting certain people in my life. Like, there's there's some people that will sort of give me advice or give me, like, a second opinion. Or sometimes they just, they know that I'm going to make a decision and they know that I need to hear it from somebody else for me to, like, finalize it. Yeah. But those are the people that I like give my full trust to, and it's been of utmost value to me. Um, as far as like yoga teacher training goes, how many hours do you think you've put into like continuing education for yeah, yoga? Probably close to a thousand, um, I'll say. And I've just recently been diving into online training as well, <clears throat> because I'm finding some trainings online that I that resonate with me and what, and what I'm looking for. And um, so I've been done, yeah, I think I'm, I'm hitting that thousand year mark and it's been about three years. So I've only been teaching for about two and a half, three years now. It's yeah. crazy. Like I've gone to a, a few of your yin yoga classes and I like yin yoga because it complements spin very well. Yes. And I'm active in all kinds of other ways. Cause, like I go to a lot of different classes. I train myself just at the gym. Yeah. But I find 
to get back to that sort of neutral set position because doing too much of one thing, you need to counter that with something else. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel better mentally, physically, allows me to perform better with all the things, but I find what tends to be the most helpful is just having those cues, those ones that are actually going to be the most effective. And especially like the most recent class that I went to, I was like, wow, like so much of this stuff aligns exactly with a lot of like the continuing education that I'm doing for, for being a trainer and just like the, the breathing cues and different ways to describe body positioning. And it's so valuable because I'll run through and meet many, many, many clients And I can say one thing to one person that will absolutely not work for another person. So the more things that I've taken in from how other people describe it, the more effective I am to communicate to my people, which is great. And I think sometimes people think, well, if if they didn't understand me, then it's a them thing. And it's like, oh, no, if they didn't understand me, that's a me thing. I have to keep working on how I communicate and how I understand concepts. Yeah. So that's something that I've really enjoyed about your class. Oh, thanks, Chris. When you're seeing somebody walk in to a room, whether it be a yoga room, whether it be like a party or whatever, what are the first three things that you notice about them? First, I notice where their eye, their eye contact, not necessarily with me, especially if it's a group, but where are their eyes cast? Because that tells me where they're at. It might not tell me who they are as a person, but where they're at right now. Um, I notice their body posture, whole body posture, from the toes, from the, the way their direction, their feet pointing, um, the chest, the palms, whether the palms are flipping forward or back. That tells me how they're feeling in their heart. Um, and I notice usually... <clears throat> If it's a yoga room, where in the room they'll go to as well. Do they go to the corners? Do they go to the edge by the walls? Do they go to the center? And sometimes I have um, regulars that come to my class. And sometimes I'll get the regulars. They don't have regular spots. Where they go to kind of tells me where they're at in that day as well. Even all of the way they walk in, the way their shoulders are, the way their hands are. Um, yeah, I, 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 I tend to read people um, more energetically rather than physically as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I can walk into a room, and for me as a teacher, this was what the hardest, this was the most challenging thing, was walking into a room and almost being assaulted by um, the energies that were in the room. It just became so much. And one of the people, so I work with a group of energy workers. They're all different parts of Edmonton, and they all do different things. And they all are in my support structure that help me kind of navigate my way through all of this. Um, And one of them taught me how to just create energetic boundaries um, so that when I walk into a room, I'm not hit with everybody's everything, all the what kind of day you're having and what kind of day you're having and what happened to you yesterday. So I can be more neutral when I walk into a room. And if I'm more neutral, then I can offer more in terms of support, energetic support. When I walk into a room, I like to be able to, if I'm able to, hold the room energetically so that the students who are in the room can let go, fully let go. And sometimes you need to come to a few classes to trust me and know me enough to know that when you come into my space, 
you can let go because I've got you. And um, if I myself am going through something, and I did last year, at the end of last year, where I feel that I'm unable to hold a space energetically, I won't teach. I'm that teacher. I would rather get somebody else to teach for me because um, if I can't hold myself, I can't hold you. Yeah. When you're going through an obstacle, such as anything like where you wouldn't be able to teach, what are your ways of overcoming? What are your ways of like building yourself back up or feeling supported or whatever it be? Um, depends. There's different levels. So I, I had something last year that happened with me and um, it ended up with me going back to a therapist and going into therapy and um, then I have a, a group that I kind of lean on really heavily and I have a group of friends that I met through group therapy and stuff like that. We still meet once a month. Um, my husband is a big source of my support. I lean very heavily on him. Um, and it depends on the extent. Um, last year for me was um, emotionally difficult because it had to do with my uh, relationship with one of my parents. And um, <clears throat> so it became, it got to a point where I had a few days, maybe even a few weeks, where I literally just didn't get out of bed, um, you know. And it's what I needed at the time. And when it was time to get up, it was time to get up and go get help. And, you know, fortunately, I work with people that are very, very understanding, very compassionate, very supportive. So they were very all on board with what was happening. So I was able to get that support as well and getting getting my classes covered and stuff like that. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm very much a um, supporter of leaning into it. Wherever you're in and wherever I'm in, lean into it. I don't fight it. Mm -hmm. um, because I've found through experience when I fight it, it's very temporary. The reprieve is very temporary and the fall back is very intense and very deep and far deeper and you fall to a far greater depth, harder to come out of. So I find that if I'm going through something, I give it up and I'm into it. Just feel all the things, let it all come up, um, deal with everything. And if I can't deal with it, just let it wash, let it wash. And it's what I teach in my class as well is it doesn't always, it's not always great, but even when it's bad, let it wash, feel it, allow yourself. It's, it's, it's almost the luxury of giving yourself permission to feel, because we have almost been um, socialized into believing that we chase the good and we turn away from the bad, or we go run away from the bad. But I found for myself that doesn't work. You, 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 you sit in it all. You sit in the good, you sit in the bad, you sit in it. Because we learn more from when we're in a dark place than we do from the good. The good things are great because they just feel so pleasurable. You know, we become these pleasure seekers because of the feeling, the endorphin rush, all the good stuff that happens chemically in our bodies, we chase that sensation there. And there's very few lessons to be learned there. It's all pleasure. The lessons come from the the darkness, the lessons come from the things that make us uncomfortable. The lessons come from the things that when you're hitting rock bottom and there's nowhere else to go, you're forced to find a new path 
And those are the lessons. So I'm, I'm a big fan of leaning into it. Find the dark things and sit in it. So true. And like, as far as like emotions and stuff, whether it's joy or sadness, like just feeling them wholeheartedly. Yeah. Like there, there's been a lot of, of situations where people, it, they come across things like their, their dog is injured or yeah. their, their spouse is battling cancer. And it's just, I've been seeing it amongst my social circle. I'm like, holy crap. Like how, how are are they being so resilient throughout these things? Because I often am a person who puts myself in other people's shoes and it's especially apparent when it's somebody that I can really relate to. And then I was, it was yesterday where I was thinking to myself about like, why, why do I always sort of like feel empathy for other people when they're in their situations? And I, for a split second, I kind of felt silly or dumb for it. But then I was like, you know, like if I feel like I need to show empathy for somebody, I am going to show empathy for them. And if I feel silly for reaching out to somebody to check up on them, I shouldn't because that's what I felt I needed to do. And I did it and I feel better for it. It's such a, it's tricky though, because it's true. We are kind of trained to be just unstoppable and have the best life ever and only show the good things and like never never talk about it if we're feeling down and i i'm an advocate that maybe maybe don't announce that you're feeling down but talk to somebody yeah like have have your social circle and have somebody that you just can reach out to because there's so many people in everybody's life where if they knew that somebody that they felt were were a great person needed somebody to just talk to they they'd be there it's invaluable like you can't do that enough and it's neat because when you like seek it out when you're like i need to just tell somebody about it and you actually like ask around yeah it won't take long to find somebody that's like okay let's like let's set something up let's go meet up let's go for a walk yeah so it's something i like to to advocate for because sometimes people need like this little reminder whether it be on a podcast or in a post or whatever just like learn to ride your roller coaster but go up and down yes and stay buckled in (laughs) exactly exactly and you know appreciate everything for what it's giving you the lessons it's a gift i always say the 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 dark moments it's a gift it doesn't seem like a gift at the time yeah Uh, but when you look back and you look at what you came what you either learned from or the distance you've traveled from it then you see it for the gift that it is. That's a gift that nobody can give you that comes from your own sitting in it, right? It's so true. And it's like, it's something that's played a big role in, in any of the, the things that I've done to change my life. And I can see how it's played a huge role in a lot of people that I know, a lot of people that have been on this podcast where yeah. they hit their dark moment and it was dark. Yeah. And what came from it is amazing. Yeah. And it, it's not like that's it that everything from this point on will be amazing, but it's that knowledge that from darkness comes light kind of thing. Yeah. And it's it's all about having these things set in place. And a lot of the time I like to call them non-negotiables. So it's perfect segue. In any given week, what are your five? List five non-negotiables that like nobody can tamper with them. They have to happen. And those are your important things. 
my non-negotiables uh my peace of mind right now recently especially since last year my peace of mind is a non-negotiable anything that um, threatens or comes in the way of my peace of mind i will remove it without hesitation uh, regardless of what it is um my the peace of my family unit as in the people that live under the roof of my house my husband my four children non-negotiable same thing anything that seems to be threatening that happiness and peace i will step in and deal with it um non-negotiables my um my time to my time to myself because i live in a house with five other people my time to myself is a non-negotiable as well so even if we're all in the house together and i need to carve out an hour or two for myself it is and they understand that and they appreciate that regardless of where um that is non-negotiable my um finding joy in the everyday moments has become my thing as well my non-negotiable as well is every day um to find something and it, it it can be something like you know sitting at this table with you right now and being so present in it right now um and i know i'm never going to have this once i walk out of here i'm done but this feeling that i have of being right here this joy this small joy of being meeting somebody like you um those little things non-negotiable in the sense that i my little moments of finding joy i try to keep them pure in that when i'm having them and i'm experiencing them try not to let them be tarnished with my own other thoughts coming into it you know so watching my own mind basically how many was that i think um, we must have had five okay because really i do good. ramble right i'm a bit of a ramble <laughs> i think it's my my background <laughs> you're a good speaker though like you're you're able to eloquently present everything that has meaning to you and i think it'll be well received Oh, I'm curious, yes. how did you get into taking spin classes? Like what was what was your very first spin class like? Oh, um I think um my very first spin class was at a little studio that was on the corner of Rabbit Hill and Tolaga. It's not there any longer. It was owned by um husband and wife, really nice couple, and I didn't like it. I I I felt I was very out of control. I uncoordinated. I felt like I was going to throw up and my head was going to explode. And then I didn't go for a long time. And then Farah um um had got involved with a studio around White and my husband and I went to support her. We we're, we're big supporters of uh, of Farah Nahid and the things that they've gone down. So we went there and we bought the the merchandise and we were there on the opening ride and like okay we can do this and we went a couple times but we found the trek from where we lived to there started becoming a little inconvenient especially since we we we're, we're a little bit lazy too we like things on our on our, you know presented to us on our doorstep and then um when far went to another one on gateway we i kind of tagged along we both went a couple times to that one and then when 
Psychopile opened up in Windermere, or it was the perfect storm. Everything aligned. It's right on our doorstep. Um, she was there. We went there because of her as well. We met Loma um, at the time. And what kept us and what keeps us there with them is the sense of community, speaking purely for myself. Um, I think because of the type of person I am, the personality I have, and all my my idiosyncrasies and being an only child and whatever, I'm very drawn to community. Uh, community means a lot to me, not only in terms of what I get, but what I can give. And when I feel like I'm part of a community, I automatically go into a mode where, how can I help this community? How can I support this community? Let me help, let me give, let me do. So it became less about the spin and more about this community that I found myself a part of. The spin became the side thing, which I love now. It's become addictive. I'm chasing that, that endorphin rush. I'm going for it all the time. So yeah, that's how I got into it. That's awesome. So having Far and Hate in your life, how, what are three things that have changed the way that you live your life that have come from knowing them? Um, I don't know if I've changed anything. We have, um, so we're, 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 we're a little older than they are. Um, we found that we have similar, we have a similar value system, I believe. You know, I met um, her when our kids used to go to another school a long time ago when I first moved to Edmonton. I think we have a similar value system. I find with, um, we have, um, we have an energetic bond. She have an energetic bond. I do believe that. I think she she'll, she she might agree to that because there's been times where I'll send her a little text and she'll be like, "I was just thinking about you. This is so weird how this happens." You know, we have that. I think that we also um, we we have the same sense of community as well, a similar sense of community in wanting to. Um, and being happy to support the communities that we are a part of as much as we are able to. Um, them as a couple and us as a couple. We, we generally love supporting our communities wherever we can. You know, so I think that's where we're similar. Yeah. That's awesome. And I think it's, you say like they, they haven't changed the way that you've done things and that makes sense. But one thing that I think that is so important is by being surrounded yes. by people who we share energies or we share values like that that reinforces our energy and our values exactly exactly it's like when you're around like-minded people it becomes less of an effort to do the things that are important to you because you feel supported in putting forth um your injections so whatever we want to do you feel that it becomes effortless or less of an effort when you're surrounded by people that have the same mindset mm -hmm. and the same outcome in their vision, right? Yeah. And like, I, I know Farah talks about it a lot, just elevating others. Yeah. And it's, it's true because if you feel like it takes less effort, yeah. then you're more empowered to do that active elevation. Yeah. Like make other people stronger just for the sake of being around strong people. Yeah. Which is great, and I, yeah. I love that about like community, whether wherever it be. Because I'm lucky, I I can go to a lot of studios and feel in some way some sense of community, whether it be I just know one person in there, or 
somebody I met somebody through Instagram, but it's just yeah. I I feel that being relatable to other people is helpful. It opens a lot of doors and opens a lot of dialogue to mm-hmm. to have somebody be able to relate and be able to relay emotions yeah. and, and values and all that stuff. Yeah. And the thing is the more you um the more you just do the things that you feel called to do, I found, without overthinking it, the more you'll find yourself pulling in those like-minded people. So I found the more I started doing the things that I wanted to do, either for myself or for my community, the more I came into contact. I came into contact with you, for example. I come into contact with people that share the same vision. It becomes just a natural progression, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. And not long ago, I put out like a little survey. I was asking people if they knew of any like publishers for books or like yeah. somebody who's written a book. And you got back to me. You're like, let me know if you hear anything. Yeah. So have you ever written a book or what, what, what's your mindset for that? I haven't, but actually, because we've been speaking about Farah, Farah's actually kind of nudged me a couple of times. You should write, you should write, you should write. And when I start to think about it, every creative thought in my mind evaporates and dry as a bone for weeks you know so I'm not sure I feel sometimes that might be a message that maybe the timing's not right for me um my dad has always told me you know to write something write something but um when I think about it I I I don't know what scares me about it or what puts me off it just doesn't feel very right now it doesn't feel natural to me and that could just be a timing thing that's fair that's fair and it's funny because when I, because I brainstorm things a lot of like things that I want to do. And oftentimes I'm like, oh, I'm not like qualified for that. But then I look back and I'm like, the, the last five things that I said, oh, I'm not qualified for that. Like chances are I did them yeah. and it worked out. Yeah. And so I think of like writing as the same thing. If it's something that I think I just want to do, I'll just do it. And like, right. Who, who cares? Yeah. Like. So I was brainstorming and I thought I was like certain that you have written a book because I just, you kind of gave me that impression. Did I? Honestly, I think you should. Oh, thanks, Chris. It's on a podcast now, so people are going to hold you accountable. I know it's, it's been put out there. (laughs) But I think a, a strategy that a lot of people do is they just, they have their thought and they record it on their phone. You can do voice memos on your phone. I am so bad with devices. In fact, when I when I, when Farah first gave me this, she's this idea, and she's she she'd send me a little note saying, "Have you done anything? Have you?" So I'm, she, and she's like, and I said, "I don't know how." And she's like, "Sit at the computer, open this document, write that, click save, like literally." Because I've never had to operate a computer. I had an assistant who used to do this for me back in the day, and um, so when I practiced law, I would just tell the assistant, "This is what I need done. Get this, get that," and he did all the stuff on the computer. So. Computer for me is just like a little email, checking my emails, and I really don't care to get too involved with it. So, you know, and I think I did jot down a few things, and somehow or the other deleted them one day. There's a fair amount written, and it was just deleted. The whole document is gone. I don't, it might be somewhere in the computer. It might be somewhere in the, the cloud. I don't know how the cloud works, but it's somewhere. Or maybe it's just gone altogether. So then I thought, I was telling my husband, I think I'm just going to keep an actual notebook, old school, with a pen and just write things down. But I've yet to get to that point. You got to do it. 
and I'll let you know there's some cool technology out there these days. You can actually you can have a voice memo transpose into text. And it's getting pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. Like you can you can not only get like a fairly realistic sounding voice to read out a written book for you. Yeah. But you can also just like talk to your phone and have it like put out text, whether it be you have to get like the specific app or whatever the technology is out there. Yeah. So I encourage you to explore that more fully because I think a lot of people, if they listen to this podcast, are going to be like, well, what, what's holding her up? Like the time is now. Like you've, you've spoken Aww. to so much life experience, which is so valuable to people. And I like my favorite thing and probably something I'm getting more, more notorious for is calling people out. Yeah. I call people out to go to spin classes. I call people out to go to my training session. I call people out... To, to chase their goals yeah. and like I know one of Farah's goals was to write a book so yeah. she's called out too yeah she has to do it too. <laughs> she's listening to this one yeah <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think you should feel a little bit more of a little friendly push uh, to, to seek out the resources yeah. to lay it out and to get started because I know with uh Robin Sharma's book, yeah. The 5 a.m. Club. I think he worked on that for like four or five years. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not like it needs to be a quick one and done. Yeah. But to start that journey and that process, knowing how many times you're going to like rewrite something or change something or scrap the whole thing and start fresh. That's but true. starting that process and making like a commitment of, it can become maybe one of your like, additional non-negotiables that every every day you're going to create something that goes towards having that end product that is such a good idea there you go you've given me a new one that's that's yeah that's a really good way to do it actually just carve out that time and say that's it right because it's it's been something that i've thought about for myself and like for me maybe for me the timing isn't right but for you, I feel like the timing is right because Aww. there's so much that you could empower somebody with in your own experiences from from our talk on your high school and youth experience. That That is about right there. Yeah. And you have to think about what would it be like if you knew that you could give value for somebody and then you didn't. If you knew that the things that you could say could empower somebody else or make somebody else feel more whole, but you just kept that kind of thing. So that that's what I'll leave you with on that topic. Yeah. And it's going to segue us to a question that I ask all of my guests, and you probably know what this is. If okay. you could give one piece of advice to someone on living their life to the fullest in the most authentic way, what would that piece of advice be? Mm. I would say there's we all have this intuition well nobody is it's not something that's gifted only to certain people when we hear the word intuition we think some lucky people have it we all have it mm. but our intuition we all hone it and polish it differently so it speaks to us differently in different volumes <clears throat> if you could sit quietly with yourself and shut out all the noise and all the advice and all the chatter and the stories 
and everything that has happened to you in your past and sit quietly with yourself right now you'll be able to tap into your intuition and listen to what it says to you and whatever your intuition says to you it will be a whisper it might be a roar it might be a scream your intuition will guide you and it's usually assigned to the highest version of yourself your truth your intuition will guide you to where you need to go and what you need to do so my advice to anybody would be tap into your intuition and let that guide you it doesn't matter what um, Instagram and Facebook and your partners and your parents and your siblings tell you tap right in there and let that be the guide to where you need to go does that sound too hokey that sounds perfect okay I like that because I worry sometimes I'm going but too hokey and then <laughs> did I lose you somewhere along the way no because for me that's that that's what I've been trying to use for myself recently mm-hmm. and I think it's something I can apply and most if not all of my listeners can apply it's been a good conversation Thank you, Chris. So thanks for joining me. Thanks for the banana bread. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) I hope you enjoy it. (laughs) For sure. And uh, I will close this off. We'll chat again soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. You bet.